Hello and welcome to IndieWire's Very Good Television Podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizlet on the Twitter. And I'm Ben Travers at Ben T. Travers on the Twitter. And we are once again recording in the same physical location. Uh, we are still at TCA's right now. Uh, we are recording this the Friday before you are listening to it. We are ignoring a session with Kurt Sutter talking about his new upcoming medieval drama because... Well, we have reasons. Well, I mean, it looks like Game of Thrones, and that eliminates me, and then Kurt I, Sutter also eliminates me, and then... I got bored watching yeah, the clips, so there it is for you. so here we are talking to you now uh, in person, which is lovely. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, FX kind of gave us the fodder for today's podcast, which co- goes down to basically something that the network president, John Landgraf, said during his opening remarks this morning. Yeah, and he's been talking about this for a long time, but basically what Landgraf said was that there's just too much television out there. And to elaborate on that, he said that a lot of the, uh, and of course we're paraphrasing here, but he said that a lot of the good TV that's out there is overwhelming the great TV. It's Which, taking away from it. I mean, we, we, you know, somebody was saying, oh, finally somebody said there's too much television, which is malarkey, because... We say that pretty much once every hour. Well, we say that. Uh, I mean, I feel like there's at least a few critics out there who say that, especially since we're so inundated with covering it, that it feels you know like a lot more to us than maybe even the consumers. But uh, Landgraf's been going off on this for a long time. I mean, he was he it was probably it wasn't even the last produced by conference. I think it was the two thousand two thousand fourteen produced yeah. by conference that he made a big deal about how many shows they're clearly tracking the number of original shows that are out there, and he's been doing it for a while now. I think at the time he said there were 275 and there were going to be 300, or maybe it was 325 and there were going to be 350. Today he said there were 375 or 371. Well, the number changes also when you add in, you know, what various qualifiers. Well, sure, but and in, in like whatever he's mm-hmm. gauging it by, which I think is just original content, uh, original scripted content, then he's they're expecting it to hit 400 uh, by 2016, yeah, which is an obviously just a huge number. No one's watching 400 TV shows Ew. throughout the year. I mean, that's that's a TV sh- more than a TV show a day. So uh, so anyway, the question comes back to, uh, and what we're going to try to discuss is whether or not having this much content is a good thing or a bad thing, or at least kind of the goods and the bads of it if you would at least you know agree that there's both yeah well i think what you know like i said like we we've talked too much about how there's too much tv out there but what i hadn't heard phrased was the idea that the good tv is overwhelming the great tv which is an interesting i mean which makes perfect sense when you think about it because yeah i mean you look at i mean i think not to not to use the emmys as any sort of measuring stick of quality but you look at the Emmy you know look at things that get nominated for Emmys versus things that don't get nominated for Emmys and you know some of those shows are good shows maybe but do I think Game of Thrones was one of the seven best dramas of last year I would be hard pressed to say yes well we haven't included it on either of our lists so it's pretty easy to say no and I'm the one one who likes Game of Thrones remember (laughs) I'm the one who actually still watches it and finds the characters intriguing it's true and and it's not that Liz is saying it's the second best show of the year and I'm saying it's the worst and then we take the average it's just that we're both kind of finding better shows than that to get on there but um, what was interesting to me about that point and perhaps why uh, as much as as much as I like the idea of it, which is obviously why we're talking about it, um, it felt very much like 
something this guy had said before. Like, it didn't strike me as something all that new just because Landgraf is so focused on presenting FX as the other HBO or as an equivalent to HBO or as at least an equivalent to a Showtime or a premium cable network mm-hmm. because they, at every TCA presentation, at every you know opportunity that they get to speak to critics and speak to the public, he is pushing the idea of... Uh, you know the Emmy nominations, the viewership totals, the prestige, the the, the actors that they're pulling, the, the projects that they're getting, the writers that they have in the room, like all of these really high level, high end aspects of it. And then he also likes to pull out numbers, which I think is why you know we're hearing. He's about your favorite. Shows. Oh yeah, I love Landgraf. He's he's everybody's favorite. Everybody wants yeah. this guy to keep talking uh, for hours on end. But uh, I mean, they sent out three statistical breakdowns. I think two days ahead of the FX day at uh, the TCA's, you know, in order for us to kind of prepare and get an idea of, oh wow, look at how well FX is competing with all these other programs, as well as them making the note in their big FX reel this morning of saying that they have more Emmy nominations than Netflix, Showtime, and what was the third one? Amazon. Might have been Amazon. No, I think it was somebody bigger because they want to present themselves as bigger than right. somebody new like Amazon. They Amazon they want people to think is less than them. So anyway, uh I uh I do I do like his idea. I'm glad he's putting it out there that there's too much good TV and and it's it's overwhelming the great TV, but at the same time, god, I feel like he's got so much more to say. Well, I think it, you know, the the cynical and cynical and kind of mean-spirited response to him saying that is Oh, are you sad that no one nominated the Americans for anything? Is that? We're all sad about that, though. <laughs> I think everyone's a little bit upset, which is why, which is why he can get away with this kind of attitude. Like, I mean, uh, he keep he does keep putting forth great programming like the Americans and like Fargo, which was very much an answer to him losing the bid to True Detective, which mm-hmm. kind of started the war between HBO and FX. Well, continued the war really, but uh, but yeah, I. I uh, I, I think that's kind of how he he mm-hmm. gets away with having that position, so we don't get so we don't turn on him as the press and say, "Well, the bastard executioner looks like crap, John. What are you doing?" So well, I mean, and I think there is a statement he made a statement about how there are three basically th- three components to what he looks for in keeping a show going: network, audience, and you know, experts, quote unquote. Like if the network loves it and the experts love it, the show stays on the air. If the audience yeah. loves it and the ne- the experts love it, the show stays on the air. I mean, with some discretion available. So, in from apparently for the comedians, for example, that gets get that gets canceled because maybe the network loves it, but critical response save one or two lone brave voices, uh, and the audience weren't there. I mean, honestly, is him just spending a good three or four minutes talking about the decision to cancel the comedians endeared him to me and FX for a little bit more. Well, that's, uh, a, that's as being, the one critic who kept supporting that show. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about FX that I, we're, I feel like I'm constantly forgetting how many great shows it has. Oh yeah. And I think honestly, I, I, it may just be a personal issue for me, but I, for, I think I forget about them because it's split up now into FX and FXX. And it's not that I forget they're connected. It's just that I don't loop them under the same umbrella anymore. Like, I don't think of it as, like, HBO has HBO. Mm-hmm. And and Showtime has Showtime. And Netflix has Netflix. I don't want to think about you segregating your content from great dramas and your one great comedy in Louie to all your comedies on this other network. Like, I, I don't know. Especially a network that doesn't get the viewership that the primary one does. Well, that's a relatively new thing, though. I think yeah. my, 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 my issue with it is that 
what Netflix has done really, not Netflix, geez, Lisa, what FX has done really successfully is they've really mastered the art of creating short runs of interesting shows and keeping them back, keep bringing them back. Like, you know, not, they don't even necessarily have to be good. And actually, I want to get to that point. They don't need to be great shows, but, you know, a little show like Married is charming in its way, like, and may not get the foothold that, you know, it, it may, it may not become like a critical darling or anything, but it, it's pleasant. It keeps some very talented actors in, 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 you know, craft service for some time. Like, <laughs> you know, there's nothing against that. Yeah, and, and and that's kind of an interesting point to bring up in the idea of good TV taking away from great TV because not everything on FX is great TV. I no. mean, like you mentioned, Married, I wouldn't put in that uh, qualifier. The Strain, I definitely wouldn't put up there. Um, what else did they show us today? Well, I mean, Sons of Anarchy yeah, was was a is it. a beloved show for its fan base, right. but is a ridiculous was a ridiculous mess by the end of it. Oh yeah, it, it's not something that. I don't. I, no one was surprised it didn't earn any, you know, like a best drama series nomination for its final year, despite the, despite the nostalgia. So, uh, I, I I do like his argument, and I I will be interested to kind of see what response it generates. As as today is the day it was made, and there's just been some kind of quick yeah side notes made about it so far. But well, I think my 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 only point in bringing it up is that if anyone he. FX is as guilty as anyone of putting out a ton of good shows that are pleasing and maybe crowd the marketplace to keep away the great shows yeah. or keep keep the great shows out of the spotlight. I mean, but then again, like, what do you feel like? Are there shows that for you that exemplify what he's talking about? Like the, you, the good ones or the great ones? The great ones. The great ones. I mean, you mentioned it. The Americans is clearly, I think, the greatest of the great shows that doesn't get the attention it deserves, whether it be... And it's, it's double-barreled. They don't get the ratings or the Emmy nominations that they deserve, or the Globes, obviously. So they're really getting snubbed, and that has to burn away... That has to eat away at somebody like Landgraf, who... I mean, there's nothing more you could do for that show. Yeah, but beyond that, though... Uh, beyond that, I mean, I'd, I'd argue The Leftovers is a big one that's early... <laughs> Uh, we'll see what happens in season two, but it's so hard. Time to- it took Ben. It took Ben a whole <laughs> ten minutes to bring up the leftovers this week, guys. Hey, we've got a trailer out. We've got some new photos. I mean, how could I not talk about the leftovers? But I, I mean, I do. I feel like it fits in very well. The ratings came around a bit after you factored in, you know, the live plus seven and the the streaming footage. No, that solid show. ratings. So they they that rebounded solidly. But the fact that it didn't get any Emmy attention and the critics are lukewarm on it I mean more so than they were the comedians or something like that but uh, but it's it definitely deserves a lot more than it's than it's getting mm-hmm. um, the comedians is another one I thought uh, actually if you look back in time a little bit like a little bit further back than just the now Parks and Recreation would be a great show that I felt was overwhelmed by good shows especially in comedy mm. it always got solid ratings but it was always kind of on the bubble it always got a little bit of Emmy love mainly for Amy Poehler but I mean it never is going to be one that really wins a ton and it deserves it it's, it was it's, it was the best comedy on TV <coughs> for a good three or four years years mm-hmm. and it was getting overwhelmed by shows like the big bang theory and modern family and and downton abbey and like you know yeah these kind nick of offerman still got still never got nominated did he no nick the, the fact that nick offerman and rob lowe were kept from getting any kind of award for those iconic characters is just it's an unspeakable crime like it, it just is terrible did you get to tell rob lowe that <laughs> i did not i luckily got to talk to rob lowe about his new show uh the grinder on fox 
but uh, I, Ben and Rob Lowe are now best friends. Yeah, obviously we're we're best friends, but I did not uh, I did not share with him just how upset I was about uh, his his snubs. Let's say yeah, it's, it's too small a word. I was trying to think of something bigger, but so this uh, travesty. But yeah, if you want to shift it over to kind of the drama side too, I would argue that until that last season, Friday Night Lights was one of those shows that was great. Oh yeah, but got overlooked for a long period of time. And that's I was completely unjust. Yeah. So there's definitely he's definitely got a strong argument to be made, and some of it is subjective. So everyone's going to have a different thing they're going to throw out there. Well, that was actually something I wanted to say was that the thing I when we talk about how there's too much television right now, the thing I find really interesting about that statement is the kind of television I see we're seeing a lot getting made, especially IndieWire. Like we tend to have this lilt, if you will, this bent towards the more unconventional, more unconventional shows, smaller shows for weirder networks, that sort of thing. It's just something fundamentally about how we approach covering it. I don't know why, except for we like these kind of weird shows. And in doing so, what's been what's come, come, come out to me is the fact that so many of these shows are not meant for everyone. And they are, in fact, a lot of them are targeting smaller, specific audiences. And for those audiences, what we see as a good show is a great show. Like, for example, I think Please Like Me is a great example of this. Because it's a tiny little Australian comedy about this young man figuring out he's gay and dealing with a depressed mother. It's a really charming, sweet little show. And the people who love it, love it passionately. But it's not for everyone. It's not... And it's, you know, not meant to be. And that's kind of the beauty of it. And so that's what, I mean, that's the, basically the counter argument, I think, to the idea of, oh, there's just too much good TV. Like, you, we say that because we're critics and we feel like we have to watch everything. But what's happening now is a lot of specification and people are getting the perfect show for them in a much more real way than they ever did before. And that's, I think, part of why we talk about the golden age of television, because it's golden and it's it's golden for all of us. Like I mean, John Landgraf, you know, and you know, it's not not just. I don't want to say the forty to fifty something network executive who happens to be a white male, like, and probably a straight white male. Uh, I don't want to say that that's the that's those are no longer the sole tastemakers. Well, no, and I mean, I I. I this show isn't a good example of, of getting away from straight white men or their likes or dislikes, but I've always I've felt that You're the Worst was a comedy that felt very much like something that wasn't for everyone, that right. wasn't going to really cross over a lot of barriers and, and be beloved by a large group of people, but the people who do love it, love it fiercely. Um, and there's definitely a lot of good examples by that. And what's interesting, again, kind of framing where the question comes from in this instance is it's coming from Landgraf. And he's as much invested in supporting those kind of quality shows like The Americans, which is indisputably a great show, whether no matter who's watching it, um, but he want he needs it to cross over that barrier. He needs that show to be an Emmy winner because that's what it's designed to be, and that's where it would lure in a bigger audience. He's still fear he's still fighting for that audience. He's still fighting for that kind of you know business side of things where. It does matter within the industry what this show puts out there. Whereas a show like Please Like Me, it does not need to be winning a bunch of awards. It's great that it shows up on critics' lists. It would be great if it did win some awards. We're not saying it doesn't deserve anything like that. But it has reached the people 
that really love it and it continues to grow from there and that's the success story of kind of the smaller mm-hmm. you know great shows that may be getting overwhelmed by other good shows like i mean you can't walk into a bar and talk to somebody about please like me like you could the big bang theory and that's terrible really <laughs> but it's also understandable um yeah i mean uh, it, what it makes me think about the show Manhattan, which airs on WGN America, your favorite network. I mean, Ben, I know your channel's just always tuned to WGN America. Well, I do like the Cubs. I watch a lot of Cubs games, so yeah, that works out. But the thing, the thing with Manhattan is that it's a great little show that uh, WGN America's put a lot of investment into, and great cast, etc. Wonderful creators. Um, but it's it is like the Americans, a show designed to be a award winning tentpole drama, and they just the audience isn't finding it. I don't think like they're they're slowly but surely picking it up. Like it's on they and they they you know WJ America's actually been pretty good about making sure it was available. It was it had a Hulu distribution deal early into its first season, and I believe it's going to be on Netflix pretty soon. Uh, so it has opportunities to be discovered, but. It is trying to play that game. And I think that's that's kind of what Landgraf's responding to right now. I mean, if you thought about it 10 years ago, he didn't have to worry about these kind of competitors. He mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about, you know, Manhattan's Emmy campaign coming from, you know, WG in America. He didn't have to worry about Crackle or, uh, you know, even, even you know, some of the streaming Not that he still like has Amazon. to worry about Crackle. No, no, not yet. I mean... But uh, but a lot of those smaller a lot of those smaller outlets are trying to become big notable outlets because you know if they just get that one show that one breakout show just like every other network has had be it you know Mad Men and Breaking Bad on AMC or uh, House of Cards on Netflix like if you get that one show then suddenly people will find it and know who you are and that mm-hmm. that helps a lot and then it's an industry problem like it's something he's got to contend with because there's only six slots at the emmys for best drama now there's seven would not surprise me if you know it soon turns into the oscars kind of thing where you got 10 but uh i mean even then he's you've got to earn it do you think there will ever be a best dramedy category no absolutely not why i i just i just don't see them conceding that point i think they want one, the nature of these kind of award shows is to make sure that they can get as many famous faces there as possible, so mm-hmm. they don't want to cut it down. They don't want to join something like that, so if they did do a dramedy or, or some sort of best show overall, they'd still keep the best drama and the best comedy. And frankly, I just don't think the comedies would want to compete with the dramas. I don't think... Uh, I don't well, something think... that was a pure comedy, though, could compete. Something that, something that felt comfortable defining itself as a dramedy. But then you're well. If you're if you're going to exclude things, if you're going to create a category where you exclude things because it's a full-on straight comedy or a full-on straight drama, then you got to deal with all these annoying requisites and rules and mm-hmm. you know parameters that that some crazy TV Academy board member has to dream up and figure out where the line is drawn, and and that just becomes a mess. So I I don't see them doing that. I. I, as somebody who likes competition, I would love to see something like, you know, uh, House of Cards, uh, Mad Men go mm-hmm. up against Veep and just, you know, see what people thought was the best. But, uh, again, I, I also, I just don't think people would ever side with comedy, which bugs me. I'm, I'm, we've gone over this. I'm a big supporter of comedy being harder than drama, but, uh. 
and yeah but yeah so i don't i don't see that happening and i i still i commiserate with landgraf and his struggles to make sure that something like the americans can get the attention it deserves and frankly since it's not a rating success either and if it's not going to get these emmy nominations you have to keep wondering if they're going to keep it on the air yeah it's you know they're going to they've greenlit the fourth season you have to imagine, you know, they'll at least, you know, let that ride out. But, I mean, five is going to be a question mark. How many shows get nominated after the fourth season? That's, it's hard to do. Well, I mean, but at the same time, it used, I remember hearing last fall that it used to be most shows, you know, every, every show would build its ratings until season four. And then after season four, for whatever reason, audience burnout, what, what have you, the audience would drop off. That's like 10 or 15 years ago. Nowadays, shows only improve after season four. So who knows? Like maybe season four is the year that it finally, that the Americans finally gets people watching on Netflix or whatever. Well, this is the other thing, which is, uh, which brings us back to our original point. The reason, the reason I believe that, that that kind of thing exists these days is because so many shows are being watched later. Mm-hmm. They're being picked, like Breaking Bad earned a lot of its audience from Netflix. Rectifier earns most of its audience from Netflix. Like there's a lot of shows that rely on people who are just going to binge watch it later and then they'll become so addicted that they'll start watching live. That's an old model that I think a lot of people are almost kind of throwing to the side now, including Landgraf at FX, because another thing he said today was that he wished he'd never put any of his shows on Netflix because he just doesn't want to give up those rights. And FX has been harder to binge. When I tell people to watch You're the Worst, they've had problems finding it. I think that got on Hulu, so that was a little easier. But there's definitely exceptions, but overall... It, I don't know if it'll work for the Americans. Well, they're on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Amazon. Amazon I, I shout out to Amazon Instant. Uh, your video player had, went through some sort of reboot recently, and it's much <laughs> better now. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, that is nice. Um, and, and you're right, it is on Amazon, and that could help keep things alive. But uh, it hasn't seen a whole lot of growth mm-hmm. up to this point. So yeah. for a four, like a fourth season jump. We'll see. I, I I just I don't know. It, it doesn't have that same kind of urgency like a like a Breaking Bad does. It's not that kind of show. Well, it, Breaking Bad also had a clearly defined endpoint. I wonder if Americans is a, the kind of show. I mean, because that honestly, you know, is there ga- enough gas in that tank for seven seasons? Actually, I don't. I've spoken with the creators before, but I don't remember what they've said their long term plan is. Like, if they have, I. I I'm pretty sure they have an exit strategy, but I don't think they've set a timeline for it. Um, if, in part, just because they've been wondering when, you know, how much longer they'll be able to go, and you know, this speaks again to that overall question of if these people have to worry about getting picked up or not because good shows are getting better ratings. Like, I mean, The Strain is getting incredible ratings on FX, yeah, and no one's arguing it's better than the Americans. So, is that an issue for it? Like, is that a problem for these creative types, like trying to? trying to weigh their rating success and then when they'll structure the season to, to or well series to end or not end or continue or not I mean well hopefully with the Americans at the very least they would get the heads up yeah like, I, I think Landgraf likes it enough, or loves it enough to, to do that sort of thing and I think also I think it's something we've talked about on this podcast before in fact is the idea that you know networks these days are much more cautious or much more aware of the fact Conscious of the fact, that was what I was going to say. Conscious of the fact that, you know, television shows never really die. 
they live on in perpetuity through DVDs, through streaming, what have you. And so an audience, it, 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 it pays off for future audiences to make sure that you have a great ending. True. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're seeing that more and more, and it is very helpful to, to, to have that kind of assurance these days. And, you know, then at the same time, you know, there's shows like, which is a much, a, not the perfect example of this, but shows like The Comedians where I don't feel like it had a, an ending to it. Mm-hmm. And it was just left on a note where, you know, they had to make that with such confidence, you know, having Crystal and Gad and, and then that, that team behind them and the love of everyone at FX. Like, I mean, he testified to today. They had to feel like they were coming back for at least a second season. And then sometimes it's just not feasible. Like, something yeah. goes wrong. So, yeah. It's sad, but on the plus side, there's plenty of good television out there. That's true, yeah. On on the plus and the minus side, there is a lot of TV to watch. So, we should, we, we, we actually, we, gentle listener, we actually should get, we should get this, we're going to start uh, our best thing, next thing now, because we got to get to uh, the next presentation that we're, we actually do want to see. Um, so, Ben, what's the best thing you watched last week? Uh, the best thing I watched last week was probably this new Amazon pilot, which is up for review, I guess, right now, like up for election on whether or not it gets the... Uh, up for audience feedback. Right, gets the go-ahead for a, for a full series, well, a full season pickup. Uh, and it's called Sneaky Pete, and it's a, it's a project from, well, the story is co-done by Brian Cranston, and then I, gosh... David Shore, I think? Yeah, that's right. Uh and then it stars Giovanni Ravisi, character actress Margot Martindale. Thank you. Um, a few other faces you'd definitely recognize. And uh, it's it's a fun story. It's got a lot of promise, I would say. It doesn't feel like the essential viewing mm-hmm. uh, that you'd need. If this was, if this was uh, like, boiling it down to good or a great show, this, at best, I think would be a good show. Yeah, it's by the creator of House, so right. that, use that as your... As your as your guideline, and that's why I'm that's why I'm most worried about it because I feel like it could easily slip into kind of a, a procedural style of storytelling, mm-hmm. and that would be its downfall. Whereas if it if it stuck with a serialization and, and pushed this character forward and kept him kind of on the fence, he's he's a con man who is uh, uses his cellmate's old stories who just won't stop talking. Mm-hmm. So when he gets out of prison, he can go live with that guy's grandparents and pose as his cellmate because um, he needs to be in hiding because the mob's looking for him. So there's a lot of Thank stuff going do. on. Very, very tension-filled, very suspenseful show. You're always kind of like, a, throughout that pilot episode, you're always kind of thinking, oh my God, he's going to get caught. He's going to get caught. He's going to get caught. Mm-hmm. And if they, you know, they turn it into an episodic thing where he just keeps using his con man tricks for magic tricks basically then I'm, it's going to be bad but it could be it could be better I mean I will say to House's credit I, I didn't want to sound like I was crapping on House because I was a show I actually watched yeah. I didn't watch the entire series but I watched a lot of it uh, through season six or at least and I mean that show had a, had a nice mix of procedural and also character devel- character drama that built over episodes so yeah and if it's not pushed like House had to be in a twenty-two episodes a season. If it's a ten episode yeah. season or something, then they might be okay. So. Yeah, so it could be it could, it could be a lot of fun. I watched the pilot as well and also enjoyed it. Yeah, but uh, what about you, Liz? What's your best thing you saw this last week? Oh God, I'm going to be such an asshole about this. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The best thing I saw this week was the five minute scene, five or so minutes, maybe shorter than that scene that they showed from the upcoming X Files revival that 
Uh, they screened it exclusively for critics yesterday, and it made so many people mad. <laughs> um, it if if you if you have not seen it, if you have not heard the rumors, I'm not going to spoil anything because there's actually a component to it that is disappointing, depending on what kind of X Files fan you are. But I will say. The clip confirms 100% that Chris Carter is writing and directing The X-Files again. It is the most Chris Carter... People were saying, oh man, it feels like a bad joke. It feels like parody. No, that's just the way Chris Carter writes and directs The X-Files, you guys. You've just <laughs> forgotten because it's been so long since you watched it. Like, if you, like me, rewatched The X-Files I Want to Believe recently, you will know that is how Chris Carter writes and directs The X-Files. And... I'm really sorry that we all had to learn that together, but it was still really gratifying to remember that, you know, to, to realize that we're going to have it to, get, to have our expectations lowered. But also, the X Files is coming back, and as much as I might make fun of Chris Carter writing and directing the X Files, the fact remains, I'm 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 still looking forward to it. Oh yeah, it's I mean, <laughs> no, no matter what that scene showed us, everyone is still going to be tuning in. No one was no one, despite what I said was bailing on the series in its entirety after just those three or four minutes. Probably. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I think I think there is some damage control Fox is probably planning now because that was there was not a good reaction. Oh, well, they'll release... When they release the actual trailer for it, everything will be fine because you can make everything look good in a trailer. So. Can you? Yeah. Absolutely. Can you make... It, that wig is not necessarily... I think you treated this as a joke when I sent it to you the other day, but you asked... Uh, I think it was on Twitter or Facebook for the... For one of the last great trailer that oh, I saw. Yeah. Aloha was a great trailer. And that movie apparently is terrible, but I really, really thought that trailer was well put together. So Yeah, I mean, okay, fair enough. Uh, so who knows? Who knows what could happen? <laughs> ben, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Uh, the next thing I'm looking forward to is um, actually another one of those shows that I would argue is on the verge of greatness, but right now is at least very good, which is uh, a TNT show called Public Morals. And uh, it's coming out, I believe, August 22nd. I'll make sure I double-check that date and get it in the show notes in case anybody needs to confirm. But um, it's a it's on TNT. It's directed and written by Edward Burns. And there, I think it's a 10-episode season, and he directed and wrote every single one of them. He also stars in it. It's about um, kind of an, an Irish mob in 1960s New York and the, the division of the police who kind of works with them to keep the peace. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, it's a very exciting show because it definitely has a distinct tone to it, um, which obviously is, is from Burns. And Burns has always been a very good storyteller. Uh, his independent films have always been very well crafted, to say the least. Like they may, Some of them are better than others, but he's always trying to do something, and, and he's, you can feel the passion being like coming through the screen with this show so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing more of it they're going to actually release the after the first episode premieres the next day they're going to release the first four episodes so you can watch all four of them uh, via various VOD services online at TNT.com and uh, a few other spots like that so uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the reaction as well as to see more of that show yeah, it's. I mean, it sounds it sounds really interesting, and I like Edward Burns a lot. Like, I think he's, I think he's got a, a good sensibility for TV that I'm glad that he's finally kind of digging into. This is not his first show. It's this is second. Well, he appeared as an actor on um, another TNT mobster show, which now Mob I'm, City. Yeah, Mob City with uh, that Frank Darabont worked yeah. on. Yeah. 
and it's very different from that. But uh, this is the first thing he's ever written directed for TV, and it was based on a bunch of different projects that he tried to sell as movies, mm-hmm. and no one would buy. Oh my uh, god, that's so textbook right now. Yeah, I know. And and kind of what happened was apparently he stayed close with Steven Spielberg after they made Saving Private Ryan. Spielberg's Amble Entertainment kind of convinced him to... Well, actually, TNT asked him if the, he wanted to do a TV show after he appeared in Mob City. And then uh, they kind of... that He kind of worked with these scripts and worked with Spielberg, who's an executive producer on the show, to kind of hone it in for television. And he's just... He's in love with it. It's one of his... I got, I got to talk to him about it, and it's one of his favorite things he's ever done. That's so. awesome. By the yeah. way, I, I figured out why I... I figured out why I thought Edward Burns had done another, written and directed another TV show before. Why? Why, why are you smiling? <laughs> You're well, making me nervous. Edward, in, in, <laughs> then, if you recall, your mid-run mid, mid of uh, Entourage. Oh, my God. Edward Burns, in the show, as himself, created, wrote, created the show Five Towns, starring Johnny Drama. Always comes back to Entourage. Entourage is everything. <laughs> no, no, everything is fucking Liz. That's what we learned <laughs> from True Detective, anyway. Uh, all right. What was the? What's the next thing you're looking forward to? I'm. I'm actually switching it up from the thing I told you I was going to say. Ooh. Yes. Um, On the, the thing, toes. Yes. Uh, the thing I'm looking forward to, because uh, this is premiering significantly sooner than the other thing, and also I can talk about it, uh, is uh, Doll and M, which oh, yeah. is this charming little British show that HBO picked up and now is running. Um, <coughs> the first season. The first season, I've seen the first season. Second season premieres in September. It stars uh, Dolly Wells, who you're going to see a lot of in Blunt Talk uh, this in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about Blunt Talk, I'm sure, at some point soon. Definitely. And uh, Emily Mortimer, who you've probably recognized from a lot of great projects. The newsroom, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. We're just checking off all the boxes. I, I really hope people have a bingo card of shows that we talk about every time. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's more of a drinking game than a bingo card, but, you know. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you through the day. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so Doll and M is really charming. And uh, it's about two, two women who are best friends from childhood, similar to the lead actors. And one of, in the first season, one of them becomes the assistant to... Uh, Dolly becomes the assistant to M. And a lot about how that how, how that changes their relationship and the power involved and that sort of thing. And the second season, which I, I got the chance to talk to them about here at TCA's, which premieres next month, is actually significantly different. They're shooting in New York, and the premise is that they the two of them have written a play together, and so they're getting it up on Broadway, or I think Broadway. Broadway-like, maybe off-Broadway. And the play is about them, so there's this very meta element, and they've cast, like, they, this season, uh, Emily Mortimer's husband, Alessandro Nivola, who you may rec- remember from a bunch of great films. Alessandro Nivola is in it playing Dolly's character's husband and like it's a very apparently they were talking about they were like they were talking about how crazy it was and they had a lot of fun being very meta and weird and adding all these layers and elements and not being sure who was playing who and all that and it sounds like delightful chaos and the two of them are so charming together on screen so i think it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah i'm definitely looking forward to that hopefully the that second season's meta appeal can give me my comedian's fix since that'll be. You need it, man. I do. I need. A, I need a little bit of a. I need a little bit of meta. 
get me through the day, especially with comedians gone and episodes and off season. I need need something. So you need something. That would be pretty solid. So with that, I think we should probably wrap up, especially because Fargo is starting right now. You guys, yeah. we got to go learn about Fargo. Gotta go talk to Ted Danson. We did much better finding a quiet place to record this time <laughs> than we did last time. Yeah, hopefully it's not too echoey, but uh, but yeah, we're gonna take off. So make sure that you tune into our other podcast, that Screen Talk with Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson, as well as IndieWire influencers. I'm sorry, IndieWire Influencers Yes, with Dana Harris. Uh, she's much better at pronoun- pronouncing things than I am. Yeah. So uh, so look forward to that. And then uh, I believe you can find Liz at Lizlet with an I and an E on the Twitters? That is correct. Okay, good. And you can find Ben at Ben T. Travers on the Twitters as well. You can do that. Do it with your fingers or your thoughts if you have the kind of computer that you can control with your thoughts. Minority That's the thing. Report. Minority Report. <laughs> Coming to Fox this fall. Yeah. Um, Anyways, thank you very much for listening. Do go to IndieWire.com if you want to see what we write with our fingers as well. Or our thoughts. Who knows? Who knows what kind of computers we have at the IndieWire, at the IndieWire Corp. Very advanced. Very advanced. And thank you. So, yes, thank you for listening. And keep watching television.